Uh, I want to welcome you back to another episode of the EMS POD with Chief Randall. And I would like you to know that on today's uh, show, we have a very important topic that we're going to discuss. And some of you may know that there has been a verdict in the Elijah McLean case. And with me, I have Douglas Wolfberg from PWW, and they are EMS's law firm uh, across the country. And we're going to have a progressive, open discussion about some of those pieces of the case. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome Douglas Wolfberg. Hello, it's good to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, would you tell the, the listeners just a little bit about your background and how you became the country's EMS law firm? Well, thank you. You're very kind in that. I, I, I started an EMS in the late 1970s. I was an EMS provider uh, in, in a couple of different systems here in Pennsylvania, where I'm located. And uh, I became an EMT when I was pretty young and uh, just continued in EMS all through college. And uh, when I got out of college, I became a county EMS director and uh, then worked at a regional three county EMS uh, office. And then I went to our state EMS council and then I went to the federal government for a period of time in, in Washington doing a federal EMS and trauma care planning. Then I went to law school uh, in the late 90s and uh, became an attorney and started developing an EMS practice and uh, paired up with uh, two other like-minded uh, lawyers named Jim Page and Steve Worth. And uh, we started PWW in uh, early 2000 and have been focusing exclusively on EMS law ever since then. Fantastic. And I know over the past 23 years, uh, now 24, right, that right. you have had a lot of experience in dealing with cases uh, when it comes to EMS law, so you've been busy, I'm, I'm sure. Yes, that, that is all that our firm does, 100% EMS law, and we have, uh, you know, 13 or 14 people who work here, in addition to me and my partner, Steve, uh, and, and others. So, yeah, we, we have a whole firm just solely devoted to EMS law. Well, it is absolutely wonderful to have you and your firm as part of EMS, because there's guidance that's necessary, and I believe this case really will help give us um, some nuggets that we should take from it for further guidance from you. So uh, let's get into let's get into it. Um, okay. So the verdict, right? You got paramedics involved in care of a patient. Um, you have a person who has died as a result of that care, and to put it bluntly, there's somebody to blame right? Um, do you want to discuss some of the, uh, the high end points of the case? Um, technically? Sure. Yeah. So the Elijah McLean case involved the death of this young man, Elijah McLean in 20 August of 2019. And, uh, there were, you know, multiple, uh, parties and agencies involved primarily Aurora police department and Aurora fire rescue. Uh, and, uh, after Mr. McLean was, was stopped and detained while walking home from a convenience store. Uh, a, a physical confrontation had escalated. 
A physical confrontation ensued. Police applied a carotid hold. Uh, they summoned EMS, which was police department policy when a carotid hold was used. Uh, EMS came and uh, pretty quickly after arriving, uh, they decided that Mr. McLean was suffering from excited delirium, although there was very questionable evidence of that on the, on the police body cam video. Uh, Mr. McLean was quite lethargic and virtually unconscious at the time uh, the dosage was administered. His body weight was overestimated. He was dosed uh, at too high of a dose of ketamine, higher than what was indicated. Uh, he was given the ketamine in less than two minutes after the paramedics arrived. There was a question in the trial about how extensive the assessment was before giving Mr. McLean the ketamine. Uh, the ketamine was administered. Uh, Mr. McLean's uh, respiratory status seemed to change after that within a couple of minutes. Uh, he was moved, uh, handcuffs were eventually taken off. He was moved to the gurney, then to the ambulance, and he was found to be in cardiac arrest uh, when he was placed in, in the ambulance. He was resuscitated. They did achieve return of spontaneous circulation, uh, but unfortunately, three days later, Mr. McLean was pronounced brain dead. Okay. Um, so I want to look at this as an EMS provider, not as a boss. And you have an EMT and paramedic walking on the scene. And of course, we're, we're supposed to have good working relationships with different agencies. And so now we have PD on the scene and they're telling us that this person was quote unquote resisting to a degree. And this is why they have them in this position. Um, now as an EMT and paramedic, I have a decision to make. Is it, do I wholly believe in what law enforcement is telling me and treat us accordingly? Or do I tell law enforcement, I hear what you said, let me assess my patient because this is still ultimately my responsibility because once you've called us, you've given up that role. Is, is that a fair, which, which is that most accurate assessment? Well, certainly not that we should simply take everything law enforcement says and then that's how we should act based on, on that. We have to use all of our senses, right? We, we gather information from witnesses, from bystanders, from the patient, and there was no uh, interrogation of the patient by the, by the paramedics here, no discussion with the patient directly. Um, but we take what law enforcement says as one input. We use our own sight, our own sense of sound and touch, and, and uh, you know, we, we incorporate all those inputs, and then we should make treatment decisions, but they should never, ever solely be based on reports of law enforcement or requests by law enforcement. It should never be to restrain or subdue or help them take somebody into custody. Um, any physical or chemical restraint or any intervention, for that matter, by an EMT or paramedic, always has to be in furtherance of patient care, not to assist law enforcement, right? We've got to stay yeah. in our lane and be advocates for the patient. And, you know, I think that's really one of the key lessons here. I think there were also issues about when this person that the police had in custody or at least detained became an EMS patient, right? And there was a lot of testimony in the trial Oh, well, he's not ours until the police take the handcuffs off. Well, no, you speak up and you say, 
this person is in distress and we need to take care of them, right? We're not going to just wait until you decide that it's time to take the handcuffs off. We need access to this patient. And this case really shows the emergence of a legal duty on the part of EMS providers to speak up um, when this person needs to become our patient, right? And advocate for that person as a patient, not to, you know, help law enforcement or make their job easier uh, taking a person into custody. So I think those are some really fundamental takeaways from the trial. So as as an EMS provider is listening to this explanation that you're giving, it, it makes great sense and it is absolutely the right thing to do. Here's the problem that the EMS provider is going to have. Well, I know a lot of these men and women, they're decent people, so I believe outside of work and I don't want to ruffle feathers. Um, so now what do I do? So the thought would be, to get a supervisor involved in this if the police are not allowing you to be that advocate for the patient. Is is that one of the options you think that these providers could have in, in a case like this, uh, if it comes up in the future? Sure. I think, you know, let's not forget that, you know, a big part of this case was body-worn camera footage, right? Yeah. And you didn't hear the paramedics say anything to the police about hey, we need these cuffs released. We need access. There was a little comment, but the the cop said, no, we're not taking the cuffs off, and nobody objected or complained, right? There was no full-throated advocacy for for the patient heard on that uh, or seen on that video. And look, I've been in the field, right? I understand that the people at the end, the people with the badges and guns at the end of the day are the people who are going to be in charge of the scene. And if they say you don't have access to this person, and they've and they're you know physically detaining that person, and they've got the badges and the guns. Right, that's fine. That may be what happens. That you may not be given physical access to that patient. But I, as a lawyer, would sure like to hear some advocacy and some challenging of that decision on those body cam videos that are going to be prevalent in more and more of these cases. Hey, officer, I understand. Look, we, it's not up to us what happened and what he did or didn't do before we got here. All we know is that that guy looks like he needs our help. You're standing in the way. You're preventing it. We need to treat him. I understand that is a lot easier to say sitting here on a podcast than it is to do. And I've been on those scenes and you've been on those scenes and we understand how they unfold. But at the end of the day, the police may not see it your way, but I would sure like the evidence on that body cam video that we tried mightily to advocate for the patient. I understand we don't want to ruffle feathers and we don't want to disrupt working relationships. There may well be a role for a supervisor to play to come in and de-escalate. But this is fundamental to all providers, right? There was a lieutenant paramedic and a firefighter paramedic. They were the, the in charge of patient care. And we can say all we want about the role of law enforcement and the role of EMS. They need to stand up for the patient. And if others prevent or impede or delay or block their access to doing that, that may well be beyond their control. But they need to be seen as the patient advocates. They need to be heard as the patient advocates. They need to assert themselves as the patient advocates. And I am a hell of a lot less worried about ruffling feathers than I am about saving the life of that person 
who is now in that predicament through whatever. Some people in police custody may have done bad things. Some may have done nothing at all. But when they find themselves in that position, we do not judge, we treat. Really, and that's, that's as my daughter would say, uh, period, right? There's, period, end of sentence, Chief. Yeah, yeah. So um, what, I, what I like about what you're saying is it's, it's truth. Like, it, it's very difficult to say this is going to be easy to do, but you're doing what's necessary. And I think this case is giving us an opportunity to reevaluate the business of what EMS really is. Because we harp on a lot of different things when it comes to what we're supposed to do. Get them to the hospital. Maybe save a life um, if, we're, if, if we're really fortunate, right? Making sure our documentation is, is on point. Ensuring that we have good customer service. But the bottom line is that we must advocate and it becomes a lot more difficult uh, when you have adversarial situations. But that's when it's most important that you advocate, which the word means to plead for. And so this is not a very passive process. So once you actively advocate for that patient, then you're doing all the things that you can do. And I've seen it where we did not advocate and we were lucky. Well, sometimes that runs out. And so advocating for these patients is everything. Um, and so is, is, is that well, very well said. And, you know, just a quick response to that. You know, I don't want to sound like this is an adversarial relationship on scene between police and EMS. Most often that relationship is beneficial. It protects responders, it protects patients, it protects the public, and it's good, right? But sometimes it's, it's not, or sometimes it's, it's, it's toxic. Both agencies, right, and EMS and police and fire, we can train for these scenarios. We can teach de-escalation. We can make sure law enforcement understands when a law enforcement situation needs to involve EMS and when these people, no matter if they're good people or bad people or if they've done something or not done something, if they're in custody or not in custody, when they need patient care, the situation has now changed. We can train for these situations, right? We can ensure that these conflicts get de-escalated on scene and that lines of authority are clearly established. This is now our patient because he is in need of health care. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I want to get into some, some potential solutions with this, but I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Mr. McLean and his, and his background and how he got into this, to this predicament, so to speak, with PD. And through some of the documentation through the courts, uh, through the trial, it discussed that he was walking along, someone called because he looked suspicious, and he was wearing a ski mask, and at the time, he was not involved in any criminal activity. And he was a, a black male walking along, and it was late in the evening overnight. And when police pulled up on him, then this is where this uh, altercation, in, in a sense, began, and when EMS was called. Uh, because of this heightened awareness when it comes to you know, race relationships with patients and providers, and we throwing out terms like diversity and implicit bias, 
Um, is that something that we should be at least conscious of, if not an advocate for it and understanding different types of people and groups when providing patient care? Absolutely. Look, I, I've seen the videos. I don't believe that there was probable cause to stop Elijah McClain. I think that was improper. I do want to note that three police officers were also charged criminally. One was convicted, uh, two were acquitted. Uh, so I think that continues to be an important issue. EMS, however, is not immune from that. All of these conversations about social justice and race, race relations and bias and all of these other things have been focused on law enforcement, but we're also seeing cases, whether it's Elijah McClain, Earl Moore Jr., Tyree Nichols, Eric Garner, George Floyd. You know, is it, a, is it an accident that all of these are black patients, black victims, and white police officers and white caregivers, except for Tyree Nichols, where the police officers were, were also black? But, you know, the fact is, is that we have to understand the role that, and I'm not, I don't want to comment on these two paramedics in Colorado. I do not know what was in their hearts. I do not know what was in their minds. And there was no evidence in the trial that racial animus played a role in what happened. But again, when you see a young black man stopped, detained, placed in custody, escalating to a physical confrontation, paramedics getting on scene, oh, there's a young black kid in handcuffs, let's hit him with ketamine, right? Let's just assume that he was struggling and that he was resisting and that, you know, he was suffering from excited delirium, which there is no evidence to suggest that he was. Um, we have to talk about these things, right? And look, implicit bias is just what the name implies. We all have built-in biases. They're, they're human, right? Doesn't, you're not yeah. guilty for having them. It's how you act and recognizing that you have these biases. I see a person in handcuffs. Could it be that this person was wrongfully detained? Right. That is one of the things that needs to be considered in the in the equation as we're making an assessment of the scene and an assessment of, of what happened to this to this patient. So absolutely, all of these things need to be part of, of that conversation and broader than that. Right. We know from from data, from published scientific literature that there are disparities in care between underserved populations, right? Yeah. Differences in how we treat a STEMI, stroke recognition, administration of, of uh, pre-hospital analgesics mm -hmm. differs by race in some cases, right? We need to be looking at those issues so we can identify disparities in care and close the gap in equity on how we deliver uh, care. And, you know, lastly, a big part of that is the makeup of the workforce. Studies also show, this is data folks, so I don't, I don't wanna hear this is woke and all that crap. <laughs> data and science and evidence tell us that where a healthcare workforce is more representative of the population it serves, that these disparities and these gaps in care can be identified and they can be closed. Those gaps can be closed. So we can't just say, Oh yeah, DEI, that's another, you know, we have to pay lip service to that. If our workforce isn't representative of the population we served, we serve, we will see those disparities in care. So there's implicit bias, there's workforce diversity and equity and inclusion. There are uh, health equity issues with disparities in care. Um, you know, there, all of these issues have to be discussed because they're all 
critically important. And if we get into this business to care for people, we care for all people. And we need data to drive, you know, telling us when it doesn't mean we're, we're consciously doing something wrong. It's just that through implicit bias and other factors, sometimes these disparities in care develop. And it's our duty to look for those. It's our duty to train for them. And it's our duty to close those gaps where they exist. And so I think those are all parts of the broader conversation that are raised by this case and some of the other cases that I've mentioned. Yeah, we don't have the luxury in EMS to discriminate. Because no, that's well said. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk some solutions, right? Because we, there are a lot of people that are going to talk about this case, going to complain about it, right? But then there's no one that's saying these are things we can do to make it better. And I'm going to start with educating people, just number one. And when you talk about implicit bias, the reality of what you said is so true that we have them. White people have them. Black people have them. Asian people have them. Hispanic people have them. We all have those. But there's a word that we must remember when we become EMTs and paramedics, and that is professional. And we, once we become that EMS professional, then we are able to control those biases for the greater good, and that is to plead for good patient care because we're ultimately responsible for it. So these agencies need to have a what a timeout, so to speak, and look at their workforce and then talk about this case from a perspective of uh, socially economically challenged patients, patients of different backgrounds, and how to, to go about their patient care and to keep it as fair and equitable as possible as one solution. Well, I, I don't know how I could say any of that any any better, but you know the very first step is to is to become self aware, yeah. um, and and that's why we have to destigmatize. You you said it so well. Everyone has their implicit biases, right? They they help us to process information and to make decisions. If I see a red uh, a red stove, I I know it's hot, right? So <laughs> my implicit bias tells me don't touch that, right? So it's a quick way to process information. But it's also important to understand that in some cases, those biases, whether they're implicit biases, confirmation biases, whatever they may be, we can't let them drive how we act or respond, right? We have to recognize that, oh, wait a minute, am I jumping to this conclusion because I just, I think this person in handcuffs did something bad or I, you know, I got on scene and the cop said, you know, hit this guy with ketamine, he's been resisting. Well, hold on a second, you know, let let me assess this patient's vital signs and let me get a, a history here and let me determine what's going on. Right. So I, I'm not just going to confirm, oh, guy in handcuffs and the cops just told me this. So, yep, bingo. That's what we got. Where's the ketamine? Right. So the first step is we have to recognize that we all hold these biases. It's natural that they come up, but we have to recognize them when they do. We have to be trained on how to recognize them when they do. And, um, and then we have to take care not to let those uh, influence how we act or how we respond to them. So, yeah, but all of that starts with self-awareness. And I just don't think people 
you know, a, the sky's open and a ray of light comes in and you're suddenly <laughs> self-aware. You need to be coached and trained uh, by people who understand how to do this. I, I've gone through that training myself and it was revelatory, right? Because you, you do come to realize how, how you assign certain thoughts and beliefs based on past experiences and attitudes and that kind of thing. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you become aware of those things. So uh, that's a conversation that I think has to happen in every uh, fire station, every EMS station, every EMT class, every paramedic class. Um, it's just so fundamental to, to being able to provide proper care to the populations we serve. Yes, and once you become self-aware, which is okay, right? It's it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. You know, you see all these Facebook Facebook posts about people who are pushing themselves to becoming better people, but where's the work, right? The work starts with you feeling uncomfortable and being okay with it and really growing as a person. And I think the second um, opportunity here is really getting to know your law enforcement in the area you serve. And I'm not talking about the brass coming in saying these are our policies and this is what we do <laughs> because the brass are not on the scene. I'm referring right. to those people who work hand in hand with you and having them come in and having conversations and building relationship. The relationship in general should be built before the emergency. So however you can make that work in your department, this is where the brass gets together and say, how can we do this? And let's find a way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when tempers are high and chaos is raining down uh, on a scene, that's not the time to plan for and execute on these issues. It, it has to be, there has to be scenario-based training. There has to be, you know, a working knowledge of what are our common um, what are our common parameters here, right? And that has to all be worked out in, in advance so that those relationships can function smoothly because we know when the adrenaline kicks in, right, yeah. we're all going to get excited. But it's like anything else we do. Oh, my gosh, it's a multi-trauma patient, you know, uh, laying on the pavement. What do I do? Well, you know, once you have your training and some experience, right, you know how to methodically approach it. It becomes muscle memory. So the chaos and the panic and all those other things aren't going to control how I act here. It's, okay, I've got the plan for this. It's the same thing interacting with law enforcement, with patients in custody or patients who are detained or in any other situation where we work with law enforcement. We can train for it. We can predict it. We can have parameters. Curveballs will come up. But when we have a, a basic understanding of their responsibilities and our responsibilities and we stay in our lanes, they're not trying to be paramedics. We're not trying to be cops. Right. Uh, then that's, I think, uh, a good foundation for moving forward. Fantastic. And I promise you that I wasn't going to keep you on too long because I know you're very busy, but I want to give you an opportunity to give us any final thoughts, any other uh, suggestions or ideas from this case that you would like to share with the audience. Well, I thank you for asking that. I mean, I think first and foremost, every EMS agency, whether they're fire-based, third service, for-profit, doesn't matter to me. If you do EMS, 
you need to revisit your policies, procedures, protocols, and training. Um, for how, number one, how do we deal with patients in custody? How do we interact with law enforcement? If we're an ALS agency, we need to be looking at our agitated patient uh, protocols, uh, indications for administration of ketamine, right? We, we have to revisit those, you know, and sedatives and not just ketamine, but we can, we can do bad things with other drugs too if, you know, if we don't do it properly. So we, we need to revisit all of that. I think that's, that's first and foremost. Secondly, I think we need to be cognizant of these new duties of care that are emerging under the law. You know, when you see something like how do we manage an airway and it, it, over decades it evolves the standard of care, we're seeing the legal standards of care evolve so quickly and so rapidly before our eyes where this jury held these two paramedics accountable for deviations from their medical protocols and deviations from standards of care. We used to call that malpractice. Now it's being called criminal, right? Wow. So we really have to go back and make sure the fundamentals are addressed. Uh, thorough patient assessments, you know, you can't eyeball the patient and have the cop tell you that the guy was struggling and okay, we're going to give you the ketamine, right? Just by eyeballing the situation. Patient assessments are fundamental to everything we do, and any intervention that we give to a patient that is not based on a foundational patient assessment, which is fully documented, well, those interventions are going to be suspect because now it looks like we did it because the cops wanted us to, not because we have a good thorough patient assessment documented on our PCR. Um, that So those two, two lessons, and then the third, I think, would be to really focus critically on issues of implicit bias, health equity, um, and uh, diversity in the workforce uh, for EMS to better serve our populations. I'd, I'd say those are really the three big takeaways. Well, I really appreciate you taking out time out of your day. I think uh, you hit on some topics that some people are quite frankly afraid to talk about, and you talked about the science of it. And so it makes those those conversations and debates more difficult when you bring up science, right? So thank you for that. And let's let's just hope and pray that we see this as a as an industry and that we learn from it and that we we overall do better in all in all aspects of it. And don't forget that we plead for our patients because we are truly advocates. So well said, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion with you. These are, these are important issues, and, and uh, I appreciate you helping uh, spread the word and uh, how passionate you are about these issues as well. So it's a great service, so thank you. Well, thank you. You have a great rest of January as you try to figure out the new year, right? And uh, nice. I'm sure we'll see each other at one of these conferences somewhere, right? <laughs> I, I hope so. All right, you take care.